0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have with me Dr. Marika Shemaris to tell us all about her book titled Lives Amid Violence, Transforming Development in the Wake of Conflict, just published in 2023 from Bloomsbury. Uh, This is a really interesting book because it grapples with an incredibly important question, which is how do we understand development after conflict? Um, conflict is unfortunately quite familiar in our world today especially civil wars Um, and understanding how places how people how the ways we think about things um, respond to and develop in the wake of it is very much a pressing issue Uh, so I really appreciated this book that looks at a lot of different things and puts it all together in a way that helps us look at this question in all of its importance Um, through really helpful mental it gives a lot of kind of mental tools to even just approach such a big question and task so Marika I'm so pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book
1: Thank you so much, Miranda, for having me, and thanks for that fantastic um, welcome and introduction. And I maybe later on in the conversation, we'll get to why that almost makes me well up a little bit, the way you, oh. you talked about it. Um, no, thanks for having me. Well, I'm very glad that you're here to
0: let us dive into the book. But I do have to stop myself, because before we get into the book's details we probably should, you know, do a bit of introductions. So if I could ask you to please introduce yourself a little bit and explain sort of how you came to write this book.
1: Yeah sure thanks um so currently i'm a vice president at a research institute in kenya called uh, busara and before that i was the director of program for politics and governance as well as the research director of a long standing research consortium called the secure livelihoods research consortium at ODI in london and that's also the crucial reason why i decided to write this book so in that position um, i took over this the research directorship and this in the second Part of, of the SLRC, the Secure Lifelihoods Research Consortium. And in winding down the program, which was funded primarily by what at the time was called the Department for International Development, DFID, which would now be in the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. As part of ending that program, sadly, a lot of these research programs come to an end. Um, we had committed to writing a book and that's an that sounds like an obvious thing to do after 10 years of research with really a lot of, of partners in in total eight conflict affected countries and 100 more than 150 research outputs that we produced but actually when you then sit down and say well, what is it that we have to say if we want to write it in one book? It gets, it gets very complicated, right? Because we do, when you run these big research programs, you spend a lot of time synthesizing research and summarizing. And obviously, you know, we had this for 10 years. So we learned a lot throughout. But then to take a step back and say, but really, what is the big picture that emerges here? That what What is it that we learn from 10 years of research and not, specifically along the lines of, you know, the very detailed empirical findings, because those we have in the research outputs, but really, what is the big picture? And so that task fell on me. And uh, it turned out to be a really difficult job for me to do. It really took me a lot of mental gymnastics in a way to say but what what is the story here that we're getting and and the only way that I could do this um was by taking myself away and I took all of our publications so a lot of outputs and I went in the midst of winter to the Shetland Islands, because I thought, what is a really hostile place in the middle of winter where I can just immerse myself in this in this work and talk to myself and say, what is it that we're seeing? And so that's exactly what I did. And out of that came this framing of the book that you already hinted at, this the need to really quite seriously think about how the international community that engages in situations of violent conflict or the direct aftermath, how they engage with it and how they think about this. So drawing on a lot of material from work done by our many research partners in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, South Sudan, Uganda, um, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Sierra Leone. That is what I ended up doing, figuring out what is the big thing that we're learning from a research project like that? Not a small task at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I will say, I mean, I honestly thought I was going to break at some point. I found that so difficult because you have this, you want to find the big picture and then you want to do justice of the you know, many, many hours and years of work by individual researchers and enumerators and all the people who were willing to give their insights and to talk about their lives and so on and it was it was really really a tough job for me to do there were many moments when i thought i'm i'm really not sure i can hold all this information so um what you now see on the paper is really (laughs) a lot of graft um behind every sentence
0: well, I'm even more eager then to um, start getting into what you decided was what wanted to, needed to be said um, with putting all of this work and expertise uh, together. And I think in a lot of ways that starts with kind of unearthing the assumption, because I think one of the things that's so powerful about the book is it's not as if we don't already have a way of thinking about uh, conflict and development after conflict. In fact, one of the things that your book reveals is that we do have a way of thinking about it and maybe we should be more critical about those lenses so i think the place to start is uncovering the current mental model that underpins development after conflict and then hopefully you can help us understand where the problems are with it
1: hmm. yeah that's exactly how i approached it with this question of what is what is actually the the so-called mental model that underpins how international actors think about these situations of violent conflict and when i use the term mental model what a mental model is is it's the way you make sense of the world right so and a really obvious example would be if you you know if you believe in capitalism then your mental model is capitalism your mental model is you need economic growth you need private ownership and things like that right so you would you would always interpret the world through that mental model. And when I took this step back and I looked at all of these outputs and I looked at kind of similarities across them, what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to say, well, we need to have these individual country case studies because obviously Afghanistan is very different from Sierra Leone. But I wanted to say, but really, what are similarities across here? And the similarities that I found was exactly this, the mental model of international engagement. And then it gets really interesting right because all of a sudden when you look at all of these outputs and you look at how how development is written about particularly in these situations of violent conflict or the so-called aftermaths, but of course we know from a lot of research that violent conflict doesn't have a you know a clear stop point very often after a peace agreement things go on but just in different ways but when you look at how this is talked about all of a sudden, you think, "Wait a second, am I in a construction office here?" Because the the imagery used is really architectural. It's really, yeah, it's really like a like you're in a construction ground, and it starts from the obvious one, right? We talk about state building. And stabilization and building blocks and a lot of this suggests um, this almost these kind of blueprint approaches that there is this linearity or planability and you know you can kind of count how many building blocks you have put into a wall that then becomes the state building effort that you're doing. And I thought this is really interesting for something as messy and as unpredictable and as non-linear as what happens in situations of violent conflict. What the international lens brings is a mental model of a construction grant. And that actually turns out has a long-standing um, tradition, really, in, in political science, right? So um, one of the fathers of the idea of state building, Max Weber, also used to talk about this these really complex social processes in really kind of engineering language. And I thought, but what does that tell us? It tells us that there is the need to project that this can be engineered, that there's planability, that you can work towards a plan and you can count what you're doing. And you can kind of work towards a really clear goal. So the idea of an architect using a blueprint to build a house is that there's a house in the end. The idea of international engagement in a situation of violent conflict is that there will be state building, there will be institutions, and at the end there is a state to be built. And in a way, even the notion of the state is a very you know unique mental model which is very very appropriate for many western contexts the state in many other contexts looks very very different and and for many citizens the idea that they live in a state in other parts of the world that are non-western is a little bit alien right they don't have this this relationship that um, is anchored in this mental model of the of the state in in the western world So, that to me was intriguing. And then you could see also that in the history of these kind of mental models um, of engagement in these complex social processes, there was a little bit of an imagery shift. You have a lot of scholars who are saying, you know, maybe we need to find a slightly different way of talking about it. So let's try gardening, because we can't. it can't be that plannable. These are complex processes, but we can still think about a garden where you tend to some plants and you can do some things like watering and feeding plants, and some of them will die and others will continue to thrive but still right the mental model that underpins that is still one of kind of control never mind the garden is a little bit more malleable but it's still one of this and and I thought okay this is a moment where you have to realize actually all of these notions of planability are completely inappropriate for these situations and they really shape how these situations are understood and they shape engagement and they underpin ultimately almost every intervention in one way or another this idea of planability of reliability of measurability and that i came to the conclusion is really what is unhelpful and even damaging and it doesn't leave space to really understand what some of these situations are like and what underpins the dynamics of how they how they turn out after the conflict changes shape and
0: this in a lot of senses everything you're explaining immediately starts to resonate with pretty much any headline about a war zone that anyone's come across in the last 20 years of the implication being that there was some sort of plan that some western power had and why isn't it working why isn't it going right and suddenly this idea of hang on a second the mental model if you assume that everything's an engineering problem you would be shocked when in fact that's not how things work on the ground maybe instead of trying to make it an engineering problem We should realize that that's a mental model that has some odd aspects to it. So it made a ton of sense to me to read that in the book and kind of have you poke at and query that mental model as a way forward. Um, But you don't just do this for kind of, well, should it be engineering or gardening or something else? Um, In some ways, you go deeper even into the language beyond metaphors uh, to pronouns how do pronouns fit into this idea of revealing and questioning assumptions?
1: Yeah, this was uh, this was one moment where I kind of policed myself, and um, I policed myself in in many ways. So one way I also policed myself is I had this running dictionary of jargon terms that I would write down. That I then literally, when I was finishing the manuscript, I went for ser- your word search across the the. Um, the document and I thought I really want to try and get rid of as much of the kind of international development jargon that is very often used to really obscure clarity of thought and so another way I policed myself was when I was I was starting to write and then I realized that I was writing the introduction and I was talking about the need for us to change the way we thought about it and the way we engaged and and then I went but oh, like wait a second who's we why like who am I actually Talking about it was just me sitting at my desk, right? So why am I all of a sudden using this this very communal pronoun of "we"? Um, we need to learn this, and then I realized that is kind of points to another problem, which is the huge. I mean, it, maybe it's also the endearing part of the international development world that they do pronounce these solidarities with people, right? It's this really kind of nice way of saying, "But we're all in this together." you know we we learn together we we conduct development and so on but but of course that's not particularly really how the international development sector then engages with the people it wants to support which is when the language really shifts right it's very problematic that people continue to be called beneficiaries because it's this very unequal power relationship it's it's a weird thing for me that you know you still have a lot of programs that allow people to get cash for work rather than being just employed right and get paid for like it's this there's something strange that shifts in the way things are talked about but this we I think is actually a real it really hides that a lot of the time the people who are supposed to be supported aren't part of being of talking about what is happening with them so I now I found myself really kind of recoiling when I hear people talk about we in this what are we going to differently and I said well you really need to clarify I think who is in the we and who is really consciously in the we who has actually been included with an active voice and actively being listened to and if there are people who are on the margins of your we it would be probably useful to ask them whether they actually feel that they're on in the same we and for me a lot of the work in this book was you mentioned this earlier was about getting clarity of thought what it was about getting, well, what are, what are some of these assumptions that are just getting reflected in the, in the language that is being used, but actually end up obscuring a lot of the problems. And the we is part of that for me, as much as I would love to have to declare these solidarities, do they feel like solidarity by the people I include in that? We, I am no longer sure. Hmm.
0: Clarity of thought involves rather a lot of thinking and rethinking and catching yourself and going, oh, wait a second, but if this is different than I thought, then what are the implications there and what kind of happens next, which is what obviously the book talks about. And this is very much where I found a huge amount of value in the massive amount of um, research and practice that you were drawing on to build this book. Studies the experience Um, because you then go on to explore things that we've sort of already touched on a little bit. The idea that if you assume that what you're doing is state building or stabilization, um, that kind of has some repercussions for what you then go about trying to do and what you don't do. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about um, how you found that stabilization and state building practices in some cases,
1: maybe in all cases, can create
0: self-defeating
1: dynamics. Yeah, I mean, this, again, is, it became very clear to me, but also there's a, a huge body of scholarship on that quite outside the program on which this this book is is built. Um, but it's once you start unpacking it, it becomes really kind of obvious, right? Because you have these situations of violent conflict which create their own very complicated dynamics. It, of course, means that people need to find ways to survive and to function. So, you know, social networks are created, um, power is being passed on through these networks and so on and then in that moment in time you have maybe there's some there's a peace negotiation and there's a peace deal and the international community comes in it starts this kind of stabilization and state building efforts and stabilization in itself is a really interesting and now very contentious approach right because essentially it's kind of a very low ambition to say let's do something here to try and make sure that things don't get worse but it's often done without a lot of reflection So, what exactly is being stabilized here. And if you come into a situation where there has been a group of people who have done fairly well under the rules of violent conflict because it allowed them to access resources that maybe in other situations should be resources of the states, they should be shared among citizens – and then all of a sudden these people are being drawn into a moment of stabilization why wouldn't they use that moment of stabilization to make sure that the access to resources that they had doesn't change and so this the scholarship points us towards this insight that, of course, rules of a conflict don't stop just because there's a signature under a peace deal. So what it means is that in the very moment when the parties to the conflict are worried about losing their access to resources, losing their powers, they get given the path of, but here we're now putting in place some institution and we're stabilizing certain things. So it's, it's kind of obvious that the rules that were in place during the violent conflict would then shape how those institutions are filled with meaning so in a way you're starting to build the state in exactly the image in which the people who have access to power which tend to be people who are part you know conflict actors want to see it happening and for me south sudan is a is a very good example of that south sudan has you know had received a huge amount of state building attention in the aftermath of the the internal war between south sudan and southern sudan and now, of course, it, it's considered one of the great failures of state building. But I always think, you know what, actually, I think state building here was fairly successful from the point of view of some of the South Sudanese conflict actors because they managed to build a state in the image that they wanted it to be. They maintained their access. They maintained their power structures because the the project wasn't ever to build a kind of an equitable state that was protective of all of its citizens. So it really is necessary to realize that this idea of stabilization, putting institutions in place that then formalize rules to a certain extent, often happens at the exact wrong point. And the second part of that is the problem with, with stabilization and stapling goes back to the point made earlier, right? It still suggests also this linearity, as if after this tremendous mess of a violent conflict, you can now all of a sudden build this clear path to success. But of course, we also know that very often violent conflicts look really chaotic, but they actually function to a very almost rigid set of rules. And these rules don't all of a sudden go away. And in fact, sometimes it's, you know, often people say, but I don't understand why it seems to be the case that really bad leaders keep getting voted back in by the people who are really not benefiting from having these leaders in place and a good exa- a good explanation of why that happened is because at the very least with the people in place you kind of know where, where your role is and how you negotiated the best access to resources through the existing set of actors. It is extremely costly to renegotiate that with a new set of actors so having the same not successful or well-meaning leader in place might actually, for an ordinary citizen, be a lot less costly than trying to figure out how they might network their way with new leaders. So this this kind of sets up this, this slightly counterintuitive but very real experience that when you bring in state building and stabilization in these moments of huge change, exactly the wrong things get stabilized and built because the people in power will make sure that they remain in a powerful position. Mm. I think South Sudan is a very good example of that, um, given
0: the very close links between state building, independence and continued violence. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, I really appreciated in addition to kind of the mental clarity of the book, the focus on kind of the practical side, the actual everyday people, as you were just mentioning, um, and that that being a really important uh, lens through which any of this conversation is really had, or at least a factor to consider perhaps more than some of these engineering models do. Um, and you tackle quite head on in the book uh, issue of why it's so hard to have what you call a decent livelihood um, after conflict. But there's been a lot of effort, in some cases at least, to try and fix this. So why has it been so hard? Why is it so hard to create decent livelihoods in societies that either are coming out of conflict or are still being impacted by it?
1: Yeah, this was one of our really um, surprising findings. Quite early on in the in the research program, um, sort of, and after the first round of surveys, one of the surprising things was that in in situations where clearly, the kind of conflict level had improved tremendously. So one example that comes to mind was uh, Uganda, where we did a survey in, in northern Uganda, which at the time really was coming very clearly out of its very active conflict between the government of Uganda and the Lord's Resistance Army. And the international imagination is always, well, once you have the end of a conflict, then lives will automatically get better. It's impossible to imagine that that's not the case. And yet what we found in the, in the first rounds of the research was that that wasn't the case at all. And in fact, people's lives were incredibly volatile. So between the first and the second survey rounds, you could see that some people who had really high food food security completely slid into starving. And people who were really starving all of a sudden had more to eat. And it was just all over the place. It's like this churning of your food security. And it was very surprising because this idea of linear improvement just wasn't visible at all. So... A, a really crucial question for us became later on: well, what What is happening here? What What are some of the reasons? Um, and there are, are various ones. And again, it goes back to the initial point on the underpinning mental models of international development and why they are so misplaced in some of these situations. So, I had recently I had a very nice exchange with a gentleman who had read. A summary of what I had written in the book and one of the arguments that I make is that a lot of the economic development programs that are being implemented after conflict kind of ostensibly ends, officially ends actually do a lot to destabilize people's lives and the reason for that is because a lot of economic development programs in those kind of contexts will emphasize entrepreneurship. They will offer microcredits for people to open their own little shops or to get training in some sort of um, trade, often tailoring and things like that. And what we saw is that this was counterintuitively often supremely destabilizing for a number of reasons. First of all, the mental model that underpins this idea of entrepreneurship and learning a trade and then kind of plying your trade is very deeply rooted in an economic reali- reality that is again very westernized it kind of has the idea that first of all entrepreneurship is a good thing and everybody wants to be an entrepreneur everybody wants to run their own business having jobs is a good thing um, and there were many reasons why that's not particularly applicable the second thing is The second part of the mental model is that access to credit is a useful thing for people. I mean, that's a very kind of deeply rooted notion in in capitalism, that if you want to encourage entrepreneurship and economic growth, you need to give people access to capital so that they can invest. But we saw that actually a lot of people used this access to capital and uh, particularly for entrepreneurship programs like a coping mechanism. It wasn't that, first of all, not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. That's, you know, often underestimated. But if the only thing that's available to you is somebody saying, here, I give you some money so you can set up a stall in the market, you will probably take this. But actually, because you're not interested or maybe even equipped to be an entrepreneur or the markets in which you live doesn't actually need another entrepreneur of that kind, people often then just took on debt that they couldn't repay so it was already a very kind of destabilizing thing to say well we try and give a lot of uh, entrepreneurship support um, and then the the, just the economic system didn't really support that the second really interesting point there was that a lot of the time um, people are very indebted to other families other individuals but all, all part as part of it being in a social network And really interesting findings that we had were that you could have scenarios where in a village, a lot of people were in debt with each other. And, you know, the Western mental model will say, well, Miranda gave me $20 three years ago. I know she now needs $20 for me, We you know, we're even like, it's fine. Whereas we saw that in other scenarios, people maintained these debts, So even though I've given you 20 and you've given me 20, we still owe each other rather than just calling it quits. And why is that? Because that's part of a social economy. That means that you and I are socially connected. We have some sort of obligation to each other. And who knows how that might become helpful, right? There might be a time when I need you and then we can draw on this old debt. So if you then come in and you kind of formalize credit, you give a lot more capital to a Community, but you take away the social aspects where people with being indebted to each other also bought themselves a social network. And that that's that is often completely underlooked. And the, the reason why this is such a powerful part of the mental model was yes, I got into this very nice conversation with a, with a gentleman who'd read a summary who really took issue with that point of the argument and with the idea that just giving formalized credit through you know official institutions as you would imagine them, to exist in a state in the Western model wasn't necessarily helpful. Um, His point was, well, it's really, no, you know, nobody can argue with the fact that, for example, in Germany, the small banks after World War II really helped people to rebuild Germany, and they did a lot of good for Germany. And this is really interesting to me because it is true. Nobody argues with that. In Germany, the small banks after after World War II, giving small credits to people to establish certain types of businesses and so on were incredibly helpful. But the whole point is that's Germany. That's a particular economic model. A German society was of a very particular kind. But the mental model continues to be to translate this really deep-seated belief that this must be the right thing to do into societies, into situations that are really profoundly different. And so... So that's one one thing that is really crucial to keep in mind, that the, the economy in many parts of the world that aren't Western is not about exchanging money. It is deeply connected to social networks, to social relationships, and it can't be strengthened by simply inserting kind of a very capitalist model onto this. The other thing that makes it really hard um, to stabilize livelihoods after a conflict ends or even in situation of conflict is, is a kind of overpowering presence and imagination of violence. So it's very easy to think that the most disruptive factor for people living under violence is the violence, whereas we found that actually that's not necessarily true. What is really disruptive to people is other kinds of shocks. So, for example, if a member of the family or at worst even the breadwinner of the family becomes ill or dies, that's a huge shock. Or if a harvest fails, that's a huge shock. Violence, as horrendous as it is and as much as it shouldn't exist, very often actually is kind of factored in into people's life. And when it ends, it doesn't necessarily then create a space for things to get things to get better because very few of the other shocks get buffered. You know, social protection programs that would buffer people against illness, you know, that would offer health insurance or decent uh, access to health services are very, very rare and are not implemented as much as other things. So, so it, you know, again, it kind of, all their explanations circle around the fact that often the international imagination of cause and effect here is really misplaced, right? And that the things that seemingly obviously should work just aren't appropriate in economic systems and economic networks that work in very, very different ways. Mm. Thank you for
0: explaining that. And I imagine you've probably had a number of conversations um, along those lines over the years, um, which in a lot of ways, I think, goes to show the power of these mental models that we don't think about. Um, and therefore why it's so important to do this thinking and this work um, as you're doing in the book. Um, And part of that that you're doing is looking at kind of other metaphors, I suppose, or other uh, mnemonic devices for thinking about these mental models. And we've talked a bit about engineering. We've talked a bit about gardening. Um, In the book, you talk about clay, mortar, and straw. (laughs) Why?
1: (laughs) Why? Yeah, good. good. I would love to have the courage, Miranda, to ask you whether those metaphors worked for you. But I mean, I'll leave that as a question in the room and then you can answer or not. So what, what I try to do is I try to use as a starting point, these really comforting metaphors that are so prominent, right? All the construction ground metaphors. And then because, frankly, I needed some sort of framing device to get my own thoughts into some sort of linearity that i could put things down on paper i started to unpack and i i looked at a lot of the the kind of the underpinning wisdoms in these construction metaphors and said well can they help me to think about this in a different way and so clay for example is um is one of those that one of those metaphors or devices that i ended up with, And the reason why I did that was because a lot of the work that we did in the SLRC was about um, legitimacy, about this very, very uh, invested and quite established piece of mental model that in for state-building efforts or particularly in situations of so-called fragility and so on, one way to stabilize things, one way to improve things, and one way to also prevent conflict from recurring is to increase le- the legitimacy of the state. So to give the citizens of the states as little material or reason as possible to violently rise up against the state. Now, not all wars of recent years, of course, have been exactly like that, but there's often an element to this. And you know that was the development paradigm and really still is in many ways for a long time. So that the idea is that you would find a way to make citizens appreciate and hold their status more legitimate. And the way to do that, the currency with which to achieve that would be the delivery of better services, better access to education, schooling, better health services, better water, and so on. So kind of a very classic development thinking. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Delivering services and giving people better access to education and health services and water is a good thing in itself, right? But this was not what this paradigm was about. This paradigm was about saying, let's build better schools because it will make the citizens appreciate the state better and they will be less likely to rebel against the state but legitimacy is a tricky thing so first of all one of the first efforts of the research program was to try and prove that link empirically and in a way almost to become a little bit like a like a pharmacist about this right so well how much schools do you really need to add to get what kind of level of legitimacy and how much legitimacy do you need to make sure that people don't want to then rebel against the state. So it's be, and once you start putting it this way, you realize that this is slightly absurd, right? To think about this because really like what's one drop of service delivery adding to what measurement of legitimacy? How do you measure legitimacy and why would you assume that it becomes this kind of static thing that can be, de- you know, increased by factor of one every year or something like that. So you see how all of a sudden these these theoretical constructs that underpin a lot of this thinking become quite shaky very quickly. And then I thought, well, how can I, how can I show how legitimacy really is a very of a very different quality than how it is imagined? Because legitimacy is kind of an. an permanently negotiated thing that also involves a lot of different type of actors who are always in permanent negotiations with the state the changing governments and with each other and i came up with this with this image of clay and obviously i was trying to look at metaphors that helped me to use the construction ground but move away from it and clay i learned a lot of interesting things about clay clay of course is what bricks can be made from. And so I thought of clay as the actors that form the imagined house of legitimacy. And then when you look at the... Surprising versatility of clay, and qualities of clay. You you realize how complicated this is, right? Because you have many different colors of clay. You have red and gray and brown and mix of all of these. So you already, if you think of the clay of the actors that build legitimacy, you can already see that there's many different types. And then clay has many different layers to it. So when you when you scoop out a ball of clay from the ground, you might hold soil in your hand that is. Hundreds of years old versus soil that is just a few years old. So it's it builds on each other, right? And I thought about I bought thought about legitimacy in similar ways, saying there's actually there's a lot of deeply rooted historical memories of why people have certain imaginations of states and governments and how their relationship with them is. And then of course, clay can be molded when it's wet, so it's very changeable as our actors in these ever-ongoing negotiations between citizens and states. And then once you put it through a kiln and you burn it, then it gets rigid and then it can be destroyed by smashing it on the ground, right? So all of these, to me, became very interesting ways of thinking about the, the diversity and the many different processes that have influenced how actors negotiate their relationship with the state and how they change it and how sometimes they might do a complete about turn how they relate to the state in a positive way and then jump back and say but now actually on this particular issue we we take issue and we no longer agree with you. So I can see how this is kind of complicated as a as a metaphor to think about these things but at the same time it actually for me in writing this was quite helpful in trying to figure out what what is it that I'm trying to say here. So, yes, yeah, so I, I played around with some of these um, things, um, also really primarily to say let's you know let's be honest about the fact that humans like images and need pictures, but at the same time let's not try and stick with the same established ones because we need to get away from them. Mm. I think that that was
0: um, an important contribution of the book to not just say we can't use these models, but to start experimenting with other ways of thinking, because as you said, metaphors are really powerful, right? Visual images, mental images um, are really helpful for making sense of a lot of information. So um, starting kind of that process of, well, what could it look like that's more accurate to realities on the ground that allows us to open up to more things um, i think makes a lot of sense as one of the steps of the book um and in some ways kind of i think illustrates what sorts of things we need to think about when we try and move past these sort of models that aren't working because there are a lot of buzzwords in this area of development um there are lots of things being thrown around that try and make some of these changes but they don't all work. They don't all have the flexibility of the clay. And one of them is this idea of a locally owned approach. That's, I think, definitely one of these kind of NGO words that gets thrown around, Um, but doesn't work that well. Or we have a lot of examples of it kind of being talked about, but then challenges in the implementation. Given this thinking about the mental models and the impacts that they have, why do you think it is so challenging to implement this thing that sounds like it's a good way forward?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, locally owned is, you You know, you can hardly get away from any kind of policy document in the international development world without that being mentioned. And then I think when you speak to people who are sort of on the receiving end of being called the local actors, they have a very different perspective on how much ownership they are really being granted. And why is that? I think it's, again, because Well, maybe three reasons. One is there continues to be this power of the mental model, right? So despite declarations of wanting to hand over power to local actors who need to locally own an approach, it is extremely difficult to then let go of the mental model that started the engagement in the first place. So if we stay with the banking model, if you hand over power of implementing a program to a local actor and say do it in the way that you think it is best for your community and workable in your setup and that local actor says to an international development specialist who really believes in the power of providing credit through formal channels as a way of of development well the last thing we want to do is encourage entrepreneurship and we do want to continue to lend money to each other informally as strengthening our social network it is incredibly difficult for someone to step back from that and say okay i see this profoundly differently but this is yours and it's not just that so there's this very interesting concept of um, identity protective cognition right which also which uh, from a scholar called kane who who argues that it is very difficult for people to learn something new if it really profoundly threatens the way they have come to identify their identity so if you think of yourself if your identity is that of you know a very knowledgeable thoughtful reflective development practitioner who knows what they're doing to then take on board information to say but this absolutely profoundly challenges my thinking and I really need to change the way I look at my work. And with that, I need to change completely who I am, right? How I think about myself. That is incredibly challenging. So for someone from an outsider to step back and say, I'm going to completely park what I thought was generally applicable expertise, because I'm handing over this power to you, is extremely difficult and maybe one of the big shifts that need to happen. The second point that continues to underpin this challenge of locally owned approaches is that a lot of the time international engagement continues to be built on this idea of capacity building right capacity building is one of those things that also shows up in almost every document and a huge amount of money a huge percentage of of kind of the so-called aid money is spent on capacity building but there's two things to capacity building first of all it's it it kind of frames challenges through this deficit thinking, right? It's like there's a there's a gap that needs to be filled with capacity. And very often the imagination of what that gap is and how it needs to be filled is very limited and it's very based on this mental model of state building, which is kind of bureaucratic skills, right? So you have so many capacity building programs that would then teach the local actor to whatever, be better with spreadsheets for accounting or you know, these these kind of very narrow technical skills which break down these really complex processes into something that can be taught in a workshop or two. I mean, this is a world where day-long workshops are you know, a very common occurrence. So if you go into this idea of handing over power to local owners, but at the same time think, well, there's a few gaps here that we need to fill in terms of capacity – in your, you're already contradicting the logic of a locally owned approach because you are defining what the local needs are, right? Which is maybe bureaucratic capacity to make sure that spreadsheets are done well. And the third part of this is, you know, the person who might need to rethink their identity and redefine that their own way of thinking about the world isn't necessarily how the world works in every context, they still have reporting duties back to their organizations, and ultimately the treasuries in so-called donor countries, right? And in these these so-called donor countries, you do have a very simplified narrative of what international development aid is. And the public kind of wants to hear the stories of success against this simplified narrative, right? Which is our... Taxpayers' money goes to directly helping people out of a very bad situation and things will get better. So it's much, much harder to say, actually, a lot of this might look very unrecognizable of things getting better. But for the people who own this now, this is what they've identified, how it works for them. So there's these kind of three layers, right? The the overwhelming power of the mental model, because it's also protective of the identity of, of the worker, this notion of needing to fill gaps of capacity um, gaps and so on. And this, yeah, this the very simplified narrative of what actually international development does in these kind of situations.
0: Hmm. Very complex layers um, that I think are probably gonna have quite a few people listening to this, sort of having a bit of an introspective moment, I think, listening to that. Um, Another part of the book, though, that I wanted to ask you about is we've been talking about mental models. And I think by now it's very clear why it's important to think about them. The book also talks about mental
1: landscapes. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, so the mental landscape is something that I've come to um, think about as a concept that is useful to understand contradictions in many ways, right? So, um, again, it starts from an early finding that... Even in areas where we had these very kind of objectively measurable improvements um, in situations of violent conflict where, for example, you know, it was really obvious that roads were being built, schools were being built, that people weren't attacked at night anymore. So people were starting to walk on streets at night and they were planting different crops, which took a bit longer to mature. So you can always kind of, that's a kind of proxy measurement to say how safe do people feel that they will still be in the same place by the time the crops are ripe and so on. So you had this seemingly objective measurement of improvement, but then when you asked people about it and said, how is your life getting better? People overwhelmingly said, well, it's not. And so that's, that was so confusing, right? Because you thought, but but we can see that it is like we have these objective measurements. What is it that makes it impossible for people to experience this? And then I thought this is something that you probably have to take really seriously because you know there's a weird thing about perception surveys and how perception surveys are used in these kind of contexts. So perception surveys are a very happy, happily deployed tool um, to measure effectiveness of a pro- program to ask people whether they perceive something to be improving. And then usually, if perceptions do improve programs are very happy to claim credit for that. And if perceptions don't improve, despite a program being implemented, usually they're kind of dismissed and say, well, but well, these are just perceptions. And I thought, but what if you took that seriously, that people can't experience their own recovery? What is it that stands in the way of this? And so we did a, a set of research around that and, um, and came up with this concept of the mental landscape, which... It's kind of, again, another very metaphorical way of saying there are many, many layers to how people experience their own role in life and their everyday experience and how they make sense of them. Now, we all do this all the time, right? I permanently run a script in my head of who I am and why am I experiencing the world in a uh, in a particular way? Why is this particular situation occurring to me? Um, we all do this. We, we make these kind of... Linear narratives um, that make sense of the world. and But the interesting thing about this is that we can, of course, change them, right? And I might change what I foreground, a particular memory. Uh, maybe all of a sudden I use something that I heard from my grandmother that's kind of our generational memory of what happened in our family and why it happened in our family as an explanation for why I see a situation in a particular way. And so that's where this concept of the mental landscape come in, to kind of look at the interconnectivity really, but also how my own memories, the memories that I sometimes foreground that might come from my community, that might come from history, that might be really old experiences where I felt that I was hard done by or mistreated of who I was and how this intersects with my everyday life, how I make sense of what happens to me. And then, and this is a crucial part of it, how that influences how I act in this. So if I have this narrative of myself that I'm, Experiencing marginalisation, and I de- when I say narrative, I don't mean to suggest that it's imagined, right? This is real marginalisation, but for some people, that might be a more prominent way of experiencing the, the the world around them. But how does that then influence how I how I act? How does that influence how I make decisions? And what influence do these decisions then have on the next round of what I experience? So, for example, if my experience of marginalization creates my narrative that, for example, having access to education isn't possible for me because of who I am, then I might not send my children to school and that is a, could have a very real impact of what then happens in their generation. So it's a way to try and capture that people have many, many different layers of how they make sense. That People have many, you know, there's a lot of nuance in how people experience the world around them, it might change depending on what else goes on. And I think it's often kind of, it's often overlooked a little bit in development programming where, you know, people get lumped together often in this very broad brush category of conflict affected, not really paying attention or even appreciating how nuanced and how contradictory and also how damaging those kind of labels can be so that's what we tried to capture with that particular notion of the mental landscape and the reason why i think landscape is nice as a as an image is because there's many elements to a landscape and landscapes change right they change with the season they change through erosion they change with the weather and in many ways that's also how people's experience of their lives is it changes with the season it changes with the weather and it has many layers and different horizons and even the time of day changes the light and changes how you look at your life. Lots then to allow
0: adaptation to particular contexts, to allow relevance in a particular place um, to play in, which is really interesting because I'm sort of connecting that with um, another metaphor you talk about in the book that might be uh, relevant to sort of how development People coming in from the outside think about their work uh, rather than engineering, rather than gardening. Uh, One of the metaphors you put forward is performance art. That's a good (laughs) one to kind of imagine. If we're thinking of a mental landscape and you're walking through, I can like, you can then see a stage and imagine what happens on it. Like it sort of fits in. Um, But what would it look like for development people coming in from the outside to think of their work more in terms of performance art?
1: yeah I mean the, I mean performance art <laughs> is one of those things where um, you know I think people find that in various variations really quite well, either you like performance art, right? because you are really in- involved in understanding what an artist tries to do in setting up a relationship with the audience, or people find it very, very cringy because they don't want to be involved in the artist's creation of the piece of art. But for me, the reason why it's useful to think about performance art rather than engineering or gardening, is because performance art is a relationship, right? It only works because the artist, in whichever way, I mean, performance art has many, many um, variations, but because the artist gets up in a particular setting and says, I am going to create this piece of art in relationship with the audience. And whatever this piece of art means will be, is completely dependent on how you as the audience engage with me. So it can't be predicted, it's a relationship it's you have to engage with each other and i find that and sometimes it then works really well and something fantastic gets created and an audience member walks away with a with a profound experience of art and then sometimes it falls flat right because the artist and the audience just can't connect with each other and i find that a really useful way of moving away from these very mechanistic kind of images of control And saying, no, every engagement in these complex situations, every engagement between even an individual person who works in implementing a program of an NGO and an individual person who is part of the community in which this program is implemented is built on a relationship. Everything is something that is yet to be developed. There isn't a script for this. Like there are some underpinning ideas but if the audience reacts in very different ways or refuses to engage then it falls flat and that i find very useful because one of the interesting things that i've learned over many years of this research is that increasingly the so-called audience so people who are you know who, who should benefit from a lot of international development programs Increasingly, we see that they disengage. And why is that? Because I think a lot of the time there have been many generations of programs that they've been part of. Many programs overpromise because overpromising is a big problem in this sector because you overpromise to get funding. And they leave people disappointed, they leave people deeply shaken in some of the most important emotions that they need to nourish which is for example the emotion of hope this idea that things really can get better for them that they can experience and really live a um, a, a genuine experience of improvement but if you get disappointed in that time and time again then you do withdraw right so f- for i think for the international development sector to say well what if we looked at this as an audience withdrawing unwilling to engage Would an artist, would a performance artist then not say, I need to change how I think about my audience. I need to really understand what is it that I'm not doing that, what is it that I'm doing that doesn't speak to them. So that to me, this kind of, in a way it points us towards a a relational approach, right? That you cannot do planning of programs without really deeply taking into account how people might react to it and engage with it. And also expecting them to push back and expecting them to to sign out maybe and then finding ways to ask, why is it that this is not helpful to you? Why is it that you're not interested in engaging? So that's why I I like the image of performance art. Now, there's obviously a caveat to that because I write a lot about how it's necessary to try and let go of this sort of comforting notion, right, to have a, a mental imagery that also acts a little bit as a safety blanket. Um, and ultimately, I say, really, there shouldn't be this mental model, uh, this mental imagery. But then, of course, I go ahead and I offer one, right, which hopefully is flexible enough, but ultimately still does speak to this human need to have things um, put into clear storylines. And ultimately, I actually think that the real challenge is for people to to learn to sit with contradiction to sit with uncertainty to stop promising that anyone can see how any of these situations play out but nonetheless try you know bit by bit to find parts in which things can support the people who should locally own whatever whatever programming is designed to to um, support them so i do contradict myself a little bit here but contradiction is a useful thing to acknowledge and is also not to entirely dismiss. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Well, I think, as you said, you just mentioned locally owned, and that's kind
0: of what I was thinking about reading this part of the book. The idea of um, performance means that there is a relationship. There's two sides, whereas obviously in engineering or gardening, there isn't. Um, but also the disengagement. I mean, quite bluntly, from a performance art point of view, the audience can just walk away literally leave, leave the seats empty. And there's not much a performer can do about that. Um, And that, in a lot of ways, kind of goes back to the points you were making earlier about the challenges of locally owned and the kind of the giving up of authority and control that that entails and the challenges of that, given the sort of model and history we have that's gotten us to this point with the development sector.
1: Yeah, exactly. And of course, it is also, you know, we know this for a fact that, the kind of promise of development isn't necessarily, doesn't sound that golden to a lot of people anymore, right? Who have experienced that because of, um, formalizing things or depersonalizing interactions, their support networks fall away, but they're not replaced. So it's not, you know, if you formalize credit and you take away the social support network with it, but you don't have a state yet who will reliably offer social protection mechanisms, then you are leaving people in the lurch, right? There isn't and and so it's it's real that this idea of what development promises and can't often deliver. <coughs> isn't necessarily that attractive but of course there is something profoundly necessary like, i don't it's not for me a book of disengagement right but it is a book that says but engagement on what terms and on whose terms is a question that needs to be asked in a really really profound way and with what underpinning models of modernization and development that really aren't particularly realistic for other for many parts of the world
0: well so speaking of asking difficult questions um obviously you're doing that throughout the book but you also have an afterword so what is in this afterward how, how did you sort of conceptualize it what are you hoping that readers get from this bit of the book particularly
1: yeah so we have an afterword um because of course it's There's a a never-ending tension between research and practice in international development, which is research is very good at pointing out the shortcomings of international development approaches and really often not very good at saying, and this is what you should do better. And that's in the nature of the thing, right? Research is there to nuance, to unpack, to make things more complicated, to always arrive at the conclusion that more research is needed because, of course, things are more complicated than they look. And practitioners and policymakers – do need to make decisions and they need to say well we do we do want to implement something here so what is it that we do so it kind of um, started from that tension and the afterwards is is co-written with Stephanie Bure who is the the country director for the International Rescue Committee in Cameroon so sits very much on the practice side Um, and in a way we wanted to have a better answer to a question that you often hear in these kind of meetings where researchers present their findings to practitioners or policymakers. But very often somebody on the decision-making programmatic side will ask slightly exasperated, but what am I supposed to do differently on Monday morning? This Monday morning question is a really prominent one. And so we thought, okay, let's try and give some really practical pieces of advice that aren't in the usual space of recommendations that are phrased around, well, you should do economic development programs or you should do social norms change programs so that girls get sent to school, right? These very broad-brushed, quite normative recommendations that ultimately are not particularly meaningful and say, but what could an individual do differently on Monday morning? And if The whole book hopefully successfully argues that a crucial step is to change ways of thinking and to change mental models and to, in a way, take a step back, take relationships seriously and say, what I want to hand over power to locally owned actors, how do I do it? Then a reflective approach is really possibly quite helpful. So the afterword takes a lot of the the concepts and the mental model that the book kind of debunks and poses reflective questions to practitioners on if you find yourself in a situation where your mental model is threatened and maybe with that your identity is threatened and you're finding yourself, you're observing yourself trying to almost defend your ground um, and with that defend your identity. Are there ways for you to be able to recognize that and take a step back and realize that this is, this is exactly the moment when learning happens, right? And, and learning should be hurt like if you want to learn something properly you you need to abandon something that you've maybe believed before and believe that you held very dear so that's what the afterwards tries to do it tries to be it tries to establish a really reflective practice and with that give people some tools some ways of talking about the mental models and the kind of protection mechanisms for their own expertise that they that they deploy, so I, I don't know. I've had so far, I've had very good feedback on the afterword, um, but I could also imagine that for some people it doesn't work at all. That they would find it too, I don't know, maybe almost too. What's a good word? Um, yes, too too thoughtful or too kind of self indulgent, right? By saying well, who am I in this complicated setup? But I think that's actually useful mental stance to take so I stand by this well and I think that the key thing as we've been
0: talking about throughout is for kind of people to make up their own minds and have agency and have more flexibility rather than there being only one way to receive information or only one way to go about um changing and adapting so that makes sense and if listeners want to make up their own minds um I believe the book is available open access is that
1: correct Yes, indeed. I'm very, very happy about that. So yes, it's free. Nobody ever has to buy it. So it's freely downloadable. Great. So anyone who wants to make up their own mind, um, read the afterword,
0: read the rest of it, decide which mental models uh, make the most sense to you of the various alternatives we've discussed. Um, You can go read the book yourself. Uh, Again, the title is uh, Lives Amid Violence, Transforming Development in the Wake of Conflict, published by Bloomsbury. Um, but Marika, before we let you go, is you mentioned it very briefly at the beginning. Is there anything about your current work or your upcoming work um, that you'd
1: like our listeners to be aware of? Yeah. So my current work is um, learning a lot more about behavioral science, really, and how it links to some of these issues. And and you know, I, in the book, you can see this. I think a lot about behavioral mechanisms on the side of the kind of program decision makers but I also that you know the the research that I personally did on this was about the behavioral mechanisms that that might underpin this experience that I mentioned earlier that people couldn't experience their own recovery even in situations when it seemed like the situation was getting objectively better so so that's something that I, I'm really keen to develop further. I'm really keen to try and figure out ways we can use this image of the contradictory mental landscape to sharpen programmatic approaches and to, in a way, appreciate right the nuance and the many layers of human experience, even in situation where it seems like the situ- the experience of individuals was quite singular we have this imagination that being conflict affected is a very singular identity but it's not it's very nuanced it has many elements to it so that's what I'm continuing to work on but in many ways what I'm also continuing to work on it was you know I uh, trying to put these things into writing and some of them are really for me at least very complicated was a very unique process for me I'm, I'm learning every time that I talk about it that it's actually quite difficult to talk about it right the medium of writing ultimately served this complexity well but of course it would be served if i learned how to talk about it more fluently you know, in, a, in a in a very accessible way that also acknowledges that these are complicated things and that we need to look into a lot of yeah you know, a lot of different insights from very different academic disciplines and we need to use language across different disciplines that might not have spoken to each other so that's another thing that I'm definitely working on at the moment learning to talk about this in a way that makes it accessible and continues to clarify some of this thinking. Well I'm
0: very glad that you've chosen uh, the New Books Network as part of your progression in talking about it and making it accessible Um, I think our listeners will appreciate it Uh, and so I guess all that's left is Thank you so much for your time and expertise and talking
1: about your thinking with us. Thank you so much for having me and for engaging and for being really open about what you read in the book. So thank you, Miranda.